0: Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Now, it's pretty true. Nobody expects to face a problem uh, that leaves you in a, in a situation where you can't meet your financial obligations or getting being able to pay your bills. And I know that I always think to myself, what What's going to happen when I can't pay or if I can't pay? Mm-hmm. And that's super stressful. Yeah, really no scary. Doubt, yeah. Really scary. Mm-hmm. Especially, well, you know, hidden costs and stuff like that. Like all of a sudden it, it started out to be this cost and now it's this cost and oh man, what am I going to do? Mm-hmm. So let's talk about ways um, that we can help people who find themselves in that situation.
1: Yeah, I think that the biggest way we can help, Elaine, is just to give people information, right? Fair enough. People have a general um, view in their mind that debt collectors have all of these powers, that they're going to be thrown in jail, publicly shamed, tarred and feathered, various different things, Right. when the reality is quite a bit different. So for today's segment, we want to shed a bit of light on that because I think a lot of consumers still remain a little bit uninformed or or misinformed sometimes about, you know, what can happen if they're just legitimately unable to pay their debts. Um, You know, one just aside here that I've seen um, really, focusing on gaps in consumer knowledges or weaknesses in consumer knowledges is this CRA phone scam that we're all getting. Oh, I, had, I had a call this morning at about 9am and I had one on Monday at about 4pm. Yeah. The one this morning was from Ontario, the one on Monday was from New Brunswick, I believe. So, well, so they yeah. tell you, right? That's what the caller ID says, but really it's all from India. We know it that. is, yeah. and,
0: and it's and it's been quite a story in September for sure. Of yeah. uh, What is or isn't being done to combat it. But yeah, I yeah. remember we talked to a um, uh, 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 he was a new Westminster chief of police. And mm. he said, even I get them. And, <laughs> and oh, he's yeah. in charge. Tr- oh, that was just crazy to me. Yeah. Anyways.
1: And, and the little piece of knowledge there is CRA will never call you demanding call payment. Him. They'll never threaten you with arrest and they'll never take gift cards or Bitcoin as payment.
0: No. And they won't text you and they won't send you an email either. Yeah. It will be a letter. It will be very clear that it's from Canada revenue agency. Absolutely. And I'm pretty sure they don't call themselves CRA when they're writing you. Not generally. Officially. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's the other case. So, so a
1: bunch of, Warning, warning flags here. But yeah. yeah, so let's talk about what really can happen if you if you can't pay your bills. Yeah. And you know, essentially there's a bunch of different things that can happen on a scale from innocuous, you know, very severe. Um, you know, the first one and this one, you know, when I sit down with clients and I see, well, gee, you're not in the regular interest rate anymore. You're in the special interest rate. What that means is that they often increase your interest rate if you start to miss payments. So you might've been on an introductory rate that, you know, zero or 2% or something. And as soon as you miss a payment, it's up to 20 or 29%. Or you might've been at 19% interest for your regular rate. But if you read your cardholder agreement, if you're delinquent for a couple of payments, suddenly all of your interest rates get jacked up to 29%.
0: Which really doesn't make any sense to me at all that you, then start charging somebody more for not being able to make their payments. Because there's something going on there that they can't pay.
1: It's like someone's drowning and instead of helping them, you're putting the fire hose in their mouth.
0: Exactly. Exactly that. Really
1: not helpful, but I can see from the creditor's point of view, they're just trying to get what they can. You know, if they think that this person maybe won't pay things off, well, the more interest we charge, maybe the more payments we'll get now because we might not get them later.
0: Yeah, fair enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, Engage a collection agency.
1: Yeah, this is probably the most significant action um, that you're going to notice right away, that if you can't pay your bills, typically the first couple months, it'll be very, very nice calls from the bank or from the creditor saying, okay, well, you know, maybe you missed a payment or, um, you know, maybe something was wrong in your account this month, but let's catch it up. After three months, they've given up on the creditor relationship or on the client relationship and they call in a collection agency where there are reputable agencies and very disreputable agencies agencies, but just the idea of having someone call you from 7 a.m. in the morning till about nine at night, six, seven days a week. um, And there are rules about what they can say and threats that can or can't be made. But from my experience with clients, there's a lot of things that are said in these phone calls that really shouldn't be said.
0: Hmm, That sounds awful. Yeah, that sounds awful. What about my bank account?
1: Oh, just just one last thing on, on the collection agencies too. So, you know, the piece of knowledge I want to leave people with here today is you don't have to put up with those the province of BC has consumer protection legislation that if you send a letter, and I've got the letter on my website as a form letter, that says, I don't consent to collection calls. When I do business, I do it by mail. They have to respect that. So these intimidating calls just don't engage. Just say, okay, I'm going to send you a legal letter. What is your contact info? And then you hang up the phone.
0: Okay, so what if they don't adhere to that letter? What happens then? What kind of action can I take?
1: Yeah, the uh, Business Practices and Consumer Protection Agency of BC, so BPCP It's a big, big acronym. Um, They're exactly who you would follow up with, and they will find and they will enforce against collection agencies in the province of BC.
0: Okay, so they'll actually look after me. All right. So bank accounts. What happens with them?
1: Yeah, one of the. biggest key advice is that we give to folks when they come in to see us is right off the top, change your bank account. If you're banking where you owe money, um, literally tomorrow, go to a new bank and separate your debts from your assets. Because if you miss a payment and say you've got an account with Royal Bank and you've got a Royal Bank visa and you miss a payment, There is nothing that stops Royal Bank, and they're very quick to do so, all of the banks, of going into your account and taking that payment. If you're severely delinquent and maybe you just deposited a bunch of money for your rent, getting ready to draw it out again, you might find you can't touch any of that money because the person that you owe money to, that same bank, has uh, executed their right of offset, which means that they can take your money to satisfy a debt. Now, that right of offset doesn't exist across institutions. So, if you have your bank account, your money, anywhere else where you don't owe money, it can't be seized from you unless one of two things happens. Either you owe the government money and they can do whatever they want essentially, but it does take time or your creditor decides to hire a lawyer, take you to court, so on and so forth, and then try to seize your wages or seize your money in your bank account. It almost never happens the latter, but what almost always happens is if you do miss payments and you're banking where you owe the money, um, they will go into your account and take those payments.
0: So is it a good rule then to follow never take money out from the bank, from a, a financial institution that you have all your accounts with?
1: That's what I would recommend, separate your income, your earnings, your pension, whatever it is, Put that into a bank where you don't owe them a cent, not even an overdraft.
0: And that's just as a precaution, I'm mm-hmm. thinking. You're not even in a situation that that's an issue, but just as yeah. a precaution.
1: It's just a best practice. Um, banks don't like it. They want you to put everything under one roof, but I've never had any issues paying various institutions from another. You set everything up on auto pay anyway. It's just giving you extra protection at the expense of the bank, having the ability to just take your assets when when if you do default.
0: And those financial institutions, it doesn't matter who they are, they will appeal to you to do... Mm-hmm. The exact opposite, like to do everything with them. Yeah. And I know that they also play a- on your emotions that, oh, yeah. you know, they're your friends, mm-hmm. they're looking after this for you, they might as well look after that for you. Is there anything else I can do for you mm-hmm. while you're here? Would you let, consider, you know, and that's a good reason not to do that.
1: Well, and it can be built up, you know, over 20, 25 years, you can have a very solid relationship with a bank, but mark these words three months of delinquent payments, that relationship is done. Yeah. The collectors are in there, and they're saying things that you would never want to hear, um, not caring about your 2025-year history with the institution.
0: Yeah, that's really important information. Mm-hmm. Um, what about legal action? Because that's always a, a bit of a, a concern that um, if there is legal action, that uh, w- what am I up against at that yeah. point if they win?
1: Well, so first off, legal action is always threatened because people know and creditors know it's frightening. It's terrifying. It is. To see Just your the na- words. Yeah, to see your name on court documents, whether they're fraudulently drafted or, or real, um, you know, you, you get paused. Your, your heart skips a beat kind of thing. But first off the top, if 10,000 people owe money, all 10,000 are going to be threatened with legal action but who's actually going to get sued? One out of the 10,000. It's very very rare that creditors actually take you to court. They'll threaten six ways to Sunday because a threat costs nothing, um, but to actually take you to court, got to hire a lawyer, serve you with documents, wait for you to show up, hope that they win in court, and then hope they can enforce the judgment, which as any of our loyal listeners would know, even if you've been sued and someone's gotten a judgment against you, you can still come to Sands and Associates, you can still do a bankruptcy or a proposal, and that judgment, that court action will have essentially been a waste. It doesn't give them any extra power in a, in a proceedings just because they've taken you to court. Now, if you are the one in the 10000 that does get sued, here's what can happen. So if they take you to court and they win, and by win it means that they get a judgment against you. A judgment means that, you know, a judge in a court of law said, yes, this is a valid debt. And if you owe MasterCard or Visa some money, it's a valid debt. You know, unless you're saying that your identity was stolen, probably you're not going to dispute the debt. If they get a judgment against you, they can either come after your wages, and this is called a wage garnishment. And generally, they can go up to about thirty percent of your wages in the province of BC, which so, is a lot. Talk about rocking your world if you're just trying to live every month, and then suddenly thirty percent is coming off the top. Yeah. Um, the other thing that they can do is they can try to seize certain assets. Most common ones being if you have money in the bank. Um, if they've got a judgment against you, they can go to the bank and execute an order to basically take all of your assets there. Um, you know, as long as they're less than the value of the judgment or what's also very prevalent is if you have real estate, they can just register their charge on title and that means that when you're renewing your mortgage or if you sell the place, legally that debt gets paid out dollar for dollar.
0: So, and that's like a lien almost, is Exactly,
1: that? That, that's what Operates it is. Operates like yeah. a lien.
0: Okay, so let's talk about the good news because I'm sort of done with all the bad news. Oh,
1: well, one, one last okay. thing, um, just on jail time. Oh, I, do, I, I know, on the, on the good news, this is good news though. Many people are very worried, you know, do I ever go to jail for owing money? The answer is no. I've never seen anybody go to jail for owing money. The risk would be if you are ever sued and now you're part of a court proceeding and you're told to show up, if you don't show up or have a representative show up or something like that, there could be a warrant put out for your arrest. But that's just basically for contempt. Of court. That could be for any proceeding. It's not due to debt. Nobody goes to, to jail for debts in Canada, to my knowledge.
0: Okay. So the number one creditor that we've all dealt with or, or deal with on a regular basis or a yearly basis for sure is Canada Revenue Agency. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know what the percentage is, but a huge percentage of people owe money every year. Yeah. So um, how does that work when they're my creditor?
1: Well, they're the most powerful creditor. And I often tell my clients an old adage, communication is often as good as cash. So as long as you stay in touch with Canada Revenue Agency, they're very unlikely or less likely at least to surprise you by taking your wages or seizing your bank account or registering on your home. And they've got the ability to surprise you, where all of the other creditors have to hire a lawyer, have to serve you with documents, so on and so forth. CRA can just go straight to getting a judgment against you and registering that on your house. They don't need to go to court. It's okay. basically a tax debt. They can say, you know, this is a legally a debt with legal standing, and they can pursue a garnishy or seize your assets. So it can be serious. The good news, again, if you stay in touch with them, you try to work out payment plans for what you can afford. They're often very reasonable people. And the better news is if you can't work out a deal with them, a licensed insolvency trustee can always help you with tax debt, with credit cards, with everything under the sun, essentially.
0: Fair enough. And other tips for dealing with unpaid debt. Mm -hmm. So if you're in a situation that you can't make your debt payments, um, I like this. I like the first one. Open your mail. I have. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's not getting any better if you just have a stack of it and oh. you, you don't want to do it in, in just yourself Well, then bring it into the office. I've got a letter opener. I sit with my clients. We open a stack and we all feel better after it. <laughs> um, but yeah, you've got to know what the what the issue is before you're going to tackle it.
0: I think staying calm and not getting super stressed and anxious and getting help. I yeah. mean, if you get some, some help, that's the key, right?
1: Yeah, and the stay calm is don't let anybody talk you into doing the wrong thing. Like, you know, you're just going to pay the most insistent collector. You're going to pay back your family while you owe everybody else money take a deep breath, get some good advice, and then you can move forward.
0: And you can do it cheaply. And this is where uh, Sands & Associates comes in. You can give them a call. They have a 1-800 number, uh, 1-800-661-3030, for that first free consultation. Tell them your story, and they'll help you figure it out. And these guys are licensed insolvency trustees, so uh, they're good to have on your team. Uh, also, you can uh, go to the website, sands-trustee.com for loads of information and. Uh, as well, uh, find an office near you. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scullin along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Now talking about budgets, I know the, the tendency for me has always been uh, eyes rolling back into my head like that's the last thing I want to talk about, work on, even think about. But uh, I've, I've learned that it's a really, really important tool Um and it can save you a ton of heartache in the end. Mm -hmm. Especially if you're someone like me who worries about things all the time, having a budget and having a plan, it can take the worry out of it and the anxiousness out of it. Um, So I was really happy to see uh, that we were gonna talk about this. Uh, budgets why and how um, so looking at situations that show why you should have a budget mm-hmm. and the kind of situations you might be in and why a budget's going to be really important
1: yeah and it's not the case Elaine that one size fits all and you know you need to keep a budget and keep track of every dime you spend for the rest of your life no it's it's in many specific cases you just need to do a budget to kind of take stock of where you're at to stop um, you know just this chaos monthly chaos sometimes of money going everywhere and you don't know where your money goes. And you can't make any good decisions that way. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit too, just, you know, a budget can give you some direction of where you want to go. Um, you know, if you've got no idea where you're trying to head, well, then anywhere anyway, is going to get you there.
0: Yeah. Right? And it might not be as bad as you think. Like mm-hmm. if you're feeling anxious and things are chaotic and you don't know, it might not be as bad as you think it is. Yeah. It might be that you're doing okay, but it would be a good idea to have it laid out in a bit of a plan or on paper so you can actually see that it's okay. And if it isn't okay, then like you, a, a, a way to clear that or a way out of that yeah. is a good thing to do.
1: Yeah, so who should really do a budget? Who is budgeting most important for? And, and a lot of it is common sense here. So if you're having trouble paying your bills or paying your debts each month, if there's more month left than money um, at, at the end, yeah. um, then you probably want to start by figuring out where is that money going and what changes can I make. You need a budget. Um, if you just find yourself you're not able to save, so as much as you'd love to pay yourself first and start to put away RRSPs at the end of the month, there's nothing left there. You probably would benefit from a budget. Um, and you know another point here is if there's some big life changes that are coming, whether um, you know it's school, it's a growing family, it's retirement. Um, you need to be able to make some good decisions based on real data of what's what it's costing you to live now and what that's going to look like in the future.
0: Absolutely. So most importantly, the how-to budget, uh, step-by-step approach. I think this yeah. is such an important thing to start. So number mm-hmm. one, you say, is start by knowing where your money is is. Yeah. Not where it's going, but where it is.
1: Yeah, exactly. What is your income? You know, what, what's the amount of money you can spend each month? Um, and the way you do that is pretty straightforward. Gather your pay stubs. Um, so sometimes people get them electronically and they don't even look at them anymore. They just see, you know, what money comes in the bank. But actually look at the pay stubs and just see because sometimes you're contributing to benefits plans or social programs or different things like that. There might be things that you don't need to contribute to or things that you want to contribute more. Um, so really understanding your income is, is important. Um, and what I find too is you've got to understand, you know, am I coming up to a three-pay month or is this a two-pay month? And how do I budget for that? I'm going to have some extra money. Let's just not spend that frivolously. Let's know that it's coming. And what do I do about that if you're paid every two weeks?
0: Yeah. And depending on how you're paid exactly, like if you're yeah. paid every two weeks or if you're hourly or you're on a salary or let's say one month you make a lot of money based mm-hmm. on what your work is and the next month, not Very much at all. So if you're uh, uh, self-employed, those it's so important to have a really good look at that.
1: Yeah, and, and if you're self-employed, a great way to do it is just to look at your tax return from last year and just figure out, okay, what was my net income and what amount of tax did I have to pay on that and figure out, okay, after taxes, here was the money that I basically earned and divide it by 12. That's your monthly income. And you might feel like that's a really low number, but many people that are self-employed, they actually think their income is much higher than it is because they mm-hmm. haven't figured in all the tax obligations that are going to come at the end of the year.
0: Well, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, so keep your receipts, track your spending.
1: Yeah, this sounds painful, and I'm not telling you for the rest of your life to do it, but for a month please do it. It's you know, not a bad idea. No, whether it's a journal that you carry around, you don't keep the receipt, you just write things in, or if you literally stack all the receipts and then throw them into a spreadsheet or something like that, there's also automated tools that you can use. Mint is a great app. You link up your bank account with it. If you just pay everything with debit, you can categorize all of those those expenditures there, but you've really got to take stock for at least a month or two. And then you can probably stop because you're going to get a sense of, you know, where the money's going. But if you don't do it once, you, you're missing out on some insights for sure.
0: Yeah, so how much you're spending on costs, how much you're spending for uh, takeout meals, mm-hmm. all those kinds of things, which can really add up. Yep. Making a list of all your fixed expenses for the month.
1: Yeah. So there's two types of expenses. There's fixed expenses, which are really tough to change and variables, which are much easier. So it's helpful to know what are your fixed expenses? You know, what's the rent? What's the electricity? What's gas, internet, cable, so on and so forth. Not to say that you can't change those things. You could move, but probably where you're going to get some headway or or make some hay out of your budget exercise is going to be on the variable expenses. So you want to make sure you've estimated your fixed expenses accurately, but usually there's not a whole lot you can do to change them easily.
0: But to know exactly what you're paying for those things is really, besides your rent or besides your mortgage, Mm -hmm. uh, your power for sure, and and your digital devices and how much they're costing you and all that kind of stuff. Because that leads us to the next point, because you might be able to cut back on some of that.
1: Yeah. Once you figured out your variable expenses, you know, what's your entertainment, what's your food budget, what's your dining out, different things like that. You know, generally the variable expenses are where you're going to find the ability to, to cut things back. And it's just a question of making choices, right? You know that you can't have everything you want right now. But what do you want and what are you prepared to delay your gratification for until you can afford that later? That's what a budget helps you do is really set out a bit of a phased approach to things. So you can have it all, but just not all right now.
0: Yeah. And there's also, and I know this word gets used a lot, but there's also a mindfulness that comes with it too. of Taking a look at it and thinking about things a little better than just kind of like, oh, spending willy nilly because that's me and then i think oh man i got to hang on to this and and yeah. figure it out a bit better
1: yeah and we're not talking about a, a joyless existence no. but as, as trite as this may sound there can be a lot of joy in actually being successful in your budget every month it can be a source of pride and i often equate this to people that have lost a lot of weight by keeping a food journal they're so proud of the result that you know they were disciplined. They made some hard choices, and the result is there. Um, the result of keeping a great budget for a few months might be that suddenly you're able to save for your retirement, and you weren't able to do that before. Imagine how much self worth that helps you. How much better that makes you feel,
0: and less stressed and less anxious. Really important things too, because mm-hmm. that because money stuff can add a lot of stress to your uh, your uh, head for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, can we talk about short and long term goals? Is that the next? Ne- do you want to do that?
1: Yeah, yeah. So once you have a budget, again, a budget is a means to an end, and the end is generally, you've got some goals, right? Whether it's just to retire with no debt and to have a good amount in RRSPs, or maybe it's to, you know, purchase a house eventually, you need to save a down payment. What you want to do is you want to set some short-term and some long-term goals, but you got to make sure that you set some really good quick wins, some short-term goals that you know you're going to be able to accomplish to give yourself some momentum. So, you know, a big goal might be that you want to buy a house in Vancouver in the next 10 years. Okay, you're going to work that out on what you need to save. But a short term goal might be I'd like to get my food budget under $500 for three months in a row. Yeah. And you know, that can be something you can work towards. You can make sure you get there and feel a sense of accomplishment when it's there.
0: Excellent. Um, Writing everything down makes good sense. Creating a system where you can see your budget plan in work, Mm -hmm. uh, working rather, Yeah. really good.
1: Yeah, if it's not written down, it's typically not real. If it's not revisited, you know, that's your problem. You need to see what was our plan versus what was our actual and, you know, revisit that periodically. I think the biggest overlooked thing on budgets and one thing I really want listeners to pay attention to is really to plan for the unexpected. Mm. So, you know, the old saying, life is what happens when you're making other plans. Uh, We know things are gonna hit you from left field at some point, And a best practice is to try to amass about three to six months of living expenses. So if you figure out your budget, if there was no income, what would I have to clear each month and try to save? One of your goals can be to have a three month emergency plan. Hopefully you'll never need it, But odds are, all of us in life are going to face something where having an emergency fund is going to help.
0: Yeah, and that is a big goal. That could be your only goal to try to create that for some folks, for sure. Yeah. And in review, so what are the sort of the three top things as we wind down? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so you got to keep checking in. you got to revisit the budget all the time. I would also say relax. You know, this is not something you're going to be perfect on day one, uh, but reward yourself when you do things right. And the last is just keep it simple. Figure out the system that works for you, work towards it. It doesn't have to be rocket science, and it can be different for each person.
0: Excellent. Want more information? Go to the website sands-trustee.com for good, good questions and answers on all kinds of issues to do with money and financial debt. Call one 800 661 for that free consultation if that fits for you, as well as to find an office near you. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. This segment we we do every month, every week, talk about uh, sort of the interesting things that come your way from Mm -hmm. your clients and and sort of, well, in this case, it's a trend that's out there, um, which I find really interesting. So we're calling it credit freeze. Mm -hmm. It sounds really bad, but it's actually a good thing.
1: It's a good thing, but it's really not available to Canadians. And not available yeah. in
0: Canada, which is also weird. So we'll tell you all about it. It's kind of interesting. So what is So what is a credit freeze?
1: Yeah, so this is something that's just recently come to prominence in the U.S., but again, something that Canadians can't do, which seems really unfair in, in my view. Um, a credit freeze, it blocks a lender from checking your credit report, which is a really effective way to prevent scammers from opening an account in your name. So it's a way to stop identity theft if you put a freeze on your credit, your credit rating, your credit report, you contact the bureaus and put a freeze on. Anybody that tries to get your credit information, they need your permission. So if someone has stolen your identity, well, they're they're going to come to you for your permission, and you're going to say, "Well, I'm not applying for this card. I didn't make that purchase." So it's a really effective extra check to prevent fraud and to pre- prevent identity theft.
0: it's like an it's an it's a gate that uh, the the fraudsters didn't have to go through before.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it, now they do. If your credit is frozen, a lender has to get you to unfreeze it um, just so they can access your file info. So literally, nothing can happen with your credit while it's frozen. Um, so you know, from my perspective, well, that sounds pretty good. You know, we. Have had all really these, da- these data breach breaches recently, um, and I know that's what's really driven this change in the US. Um, it used to cost three to ten dollars each time to freeze and unfreeze your credit. So this has always been a function that's available in the US, but they wanted some money for it. Um, now it's free.
0: Really interesting. Mm-hmm. Why why isn't it something that we have here in Canada? Like what's the downside of it?
1: I don't see any downside really, and I think it's just a case of that in the U.S. there's a lot more of a litigious environment, um, a lot more, um, you know, consumer advocacy. Maybe in Canada we're also spread out over the geography; nobody gets together here. But I was amazed that the Equifax data breach didn't make bigger headlines in Canada because there were a lot of Canadian accounts that were compromised. And Equifax said, you know, we're reaching out to individuals, and I didn't get reached out to, and I don't think you did either, Elaine. But apparently, a lot of people, you know, had issues with their credit. And what I understand now is that they're offering. People, you know, free credit monitoring service. Which, okay, that'll tell you after something's already happened. Um, but they're not offering the same type of a credit freeze product. And the take up on this has actually been been quite remarkable. Eight percent of consumers have frozen their credit reports in the U.S. Eight percent. That's huge.
0: As a as a as a means to protect themselves. Mm-hmm. So, uh, pardon my ignorance, Equifax. Both borders, we can access. We Equifax would hold my credit rating mm-hmm. as well as somebody in the United States.
1: Yeah, Equifax operates in both countries, as okay. does TransUnion. There's a third one, Experian, which I'm not too familiar with, but in Canada, it's mainly Equifax and TransUnion that operate here. Okay,
0: so it's not a country thing. Right. That does. Yeah. All right. Doesn't fit that. So. Um, what can you do here in Canada?
1: Yeah, the, the one thing that you can do, and again, this just seems like you know too little, too late, and also they want a fee for it, um, is you can put an alert on your credit file. Okay. So it's an alert, and it costs you $5, and the alert will ask lenders to please contact you to verify your identity before extending credit.
0: But you said please. I
1: said please, because it's not a requirement.
0: It's not a requirement. Mm-hmm. Even if you put that um, alert on it,
1: yeah, they don't have to. There's nothing binding about it. Um, you know, there's there's nothing required. And it's almost like writing on your credit card, which I've seen people do on the signature line. You know, C I D, request my I D. Well, maybe the person will or not, but uh, it's really not a binding thing. The only protection you've got in Canada is literally to just keep checking your credit report just to keep a close look on it. Um, you can do it for free once a year. Um, they want to sell you monthly credit monitoring services, you know, 20 to $25 from the bureaus, but you generally don't need that. Um, there are some free options online like Credit Karma or Mogo where they'll try to sell you a bunch of loans. But if you don't take the loans, you can still monitor your credit online.
0: Okay. Um, so you talked about the credit bureaus offering that credit monitoring service, but that still seems crazy that mm-hmm. I have to pay <laughs> pay yeah. for data that's about me. Yeah. Right? That's where the that's where it doesn't make sense to me.
1: Yeah, you have to pay the company that should be protecting your data to let you know if they fall down on the job and your data is not protected.
0: Yeah, it's like cart, horse, barn, door mm-hmm. open, all of those things, yeah. right? Um so what do we can what can we do like what can we do as a consumer or or is there anything we can do?
1: You know, I'd advise against paying the the $5 to put the notification on there. To me, it's just money that the creditors might ignore anyway. Um, You know, I I think the better thing is just, again, just to be on the ball, just to know you're gonna check your credit at least once a year, which again, you can get the long form credit report printed, sent to you once a year. If you go to my website, sans-trustee.com, if you click on client resources, we've got the form that you send in. It's not easy to find in other places. I would put periodically check in, you know, on a Mogo or a Credit Karma or something. But, you know, really, if your identity has been stolen, it's going to be a big deal no matter what, and you're going to have something to deal with. So a lot of it is just hoping that it doesn't happen to you.
0: Now, is there a lobby that would be on our side on this to, ma- to have those changes made? Are you aware of anything?
1: Nothing that I've ever seen. Yeah, no, okay. no consumer advocacy group that I've seen. I thought they would have really rose up if something existed about the Equifax data breach. But again, it seems to have come and gone and people have moved on.
0: So if you're so fo- so if you're so inclined, uh, letter to the minister, federal mm-hmm. minister, or I guess it would be it'd have to be the federal minister for national for a national issue.
1: Yeah, and I think that that's part of the challenge here because a lot of things are regulated provincially versus federally. So I know you know a Consumer Protection Act of B.C. that re- regulates you know debt collectors and different things like that in terms of credit bureaus. Yeah, I would start with your local um, MLA and see is this a provincial uh, regulation, but I believe it's something federally would have to change, which is a long road. To get changed.
0: It is. Interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, um, other issue we want to cover in this segment, and I think it's great, mm-hmm. uh, especially um, being that, you know, student loans, they hang around for, feels like forever, I know yeah. for folks, uh, and it kind of is forever. So let's just talk about that. You, you've you got a specific um, case that you wanna talk about.
1: Yeah, this one I would summarize in the, the old adage, timing is everything, really. <laughs> so this client first came to see me over three years ago. So it was January of 2015. Yeah. And, you know, I had a very productive meeting at that time. The main issue the person was facing was Canada student loans of more than $30,000, along with about 30,000 of other consumer debt. So he was really feeling behind the eight ball. he had been a student several times. You know, first loan was in 2003. Most recently, was in 2011. Um, and though he'd finished the course of study, he's unable to make payments on the student loans, and he was worried they were going to start to seize wages. So this now, was about three years ago.
0: Now, are those valid concerns for oh, the student? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Okay.
1: Yeah, if you go silent on student loans, it's a government debt. And any of our loyal listeners would know government debts, they can shortcut everything. They don't need to sue you. They don't need to take you to court. They can just go and start to freeze wages or, or take your income. Each month, so you've really got to stay in touch and stay on top of government debts.
0: Okay, but there are some other things, uh, some sort of solutions to this too, which I I like. So yeah. the first one is the the waiting period mm-hmm. uh, that's associated with dealing with student loan debt. So let's talk about that.
1: Yeah. So this was, you know, from the start when I sat down with this person, I could see, you know, we could file a bankruptcy or we could file a proposal right then, and that was in January of 2015 but it would have only solved half of the problem.
0: Why only half?
1: Well, because there's a waiting period for student loans. So from the last date that you've been a student, if you file a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal, and it's been less than seven years from that last date, you'll still get the protection of a bankruptcy or a proposal. No one can bother you during that time, but after the bankruptcy or the proposal, where all your other debt is gone, if your student loan is not yet seven years old, it's going to survive.
0: Which means you're still going to owe the money, the same amount of money that you started out with.
1: Well, probably more because more. There, there's some interest sure. there. Um, you know, in some cases with a with proposal, it might be paid down a bit. But you know, typically in what this person was looking at was at that point probably a bankruptcy. Um, and yeah, the student loan would have been there waiting for him at the end of the day.
0: Okay. So um, what about the hardship? Uh, You talk about the provision for hardship. Yeah. When does that fit in?
1: Yeah. So that's interesting too, in that seven years is a really long time, um, and the law has been changed in this a number of times. So it was the late 80s or so, there was no waiting period for student loans, and then suddenly in a big omnibus bill, they changed it and put in a 10-year period. So no consultation. They just said, hey, if you've been a student for 10 years, after that point, you can't get out of your student loans through a bankruptcy or a proposal. That was changed a number of years later because that was viewed as pretty draconian. 10 years is a long time. It is. It was reduced to seven, and then there was an extra provision put in for hardship. So what this means is if it's been more than five years and less than seven, so if it's less than five years, you're kind of out of luck of dealing with these in a bankruptcy or a proposal, But if it's been more than five years since you've been a student, or in less than seven years, you could file a bankruptcy or a proposal, and then at the end of the proceeding, when all your other debts are gone, you don't have to do anything else for those, you can make an extra court application where you have to show hardship. You have to show that you've tried your best, you're not going to be able to pay these debts off, and it's just and right that you be discharged and you can move forward. A lot of people have to hire a lawyer. It costs a bit of money. It's not an easy process to go through, but it is another avenue to go if you if you just can't wait the full seven years.
0: Because seven years is the magic number when it comes to student loans.
1: Literally seven years to the day. If someone files a bankruptcy before it's been seven years, so we get everybody you know to check with student loans first, make sure the last day of study is very, very clear to all involved. And if that bankruptcy or proposal is filed after that seven-year period, the debts are the same as every other debt. We can deal with them 100%. But
0: if you do it before that, mm-hmm. the student loan still exists. It's still alive and well. So how did, how did it work out for this client then? What did you end up doing?
1: Yeah. So, so in that case, um, you know, I essentially advised him against taking action. Um, It had only been four years since he was last a student. Um, So I said, you know, just do your best for now, but be, be aware, you know, and once this has been seven years, if you're still having trouble, um, you know, we're going to be able to help you. So I advised him to stay in touch with student loans, negotiate whatever minimum payments he could make to work with his other creditors to try to you know, get on payment plans so that he wouldn't get sued. Um, and then in April of 2018, he came back to see me. It had been seven years. Um, he had taken my advice. So you know, he had made minimal payments where he could. His income really hadn't improved to the point where he was going to be able to clear things off. Right. Um, and we filed a consumer proposal and I'm really proud of the, the result we were able to achieve for him here. Um, the proposal was for $18,000, so about 25% of the debt. Um, he had debts of about $73,000 at that time. The student loans were at about twenty-five, dollars so he had paid them down a bit. Um, and he was he's going to make payments of $300 a month over 60 months. So over the next five-year period, he'll be making a reasonable accommodation for his student loan, be paying off what he can afford, and he didn't have to go into bankruptcy. But if he had made this proposal back in 2015, you know, he'd be finishing it in 2020, everything else would be gone, but the student loan he'd still have to reckon with. So it made a whole lot more sense for him to do his best for a couple of years and to avail himself once that seven-year period was up.
0: So obviously he made the right choice and he did reasonably well. Did his situation improve, like his financial situation improve at all? Like, was he able to make a bit more money or or was it pretty static?
1: It was pretty static between when I had seen him and, and when it was now. And, you know, I've seen that with a lot of my Vancouver clients, the costs seem to go up, but people really have a tough time increasing their wages. So, you know, he was in roughly the same situation, but the big difference was the law was now open to him after that seven-year period.
0: Got it. So for information on this kind of a situation or anything that we've talked about in this segment that sounds familiar and you want more information, go to the website sands-trustee.com or better yet, give them a a call. They've got a 1-800 number. It's 661-3030 for that free consultation and to find an office near you. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt, and we have a guest in studio. Uh, lovely Taylor Mark. Uh, has a, an enormous background in all kinds of things financial. She's a certified financial planner, chartered life underwriter, certified health insurance specialist, has loads of years of experience in the financial industry. Uh, YouTube series as well. I want to throw that in. The series is called Street Smarts with Taylor. And uh, what we're talking about, and, and I asked you before we started, life insurance, it seems to be the thing that you
2: are most passionate about, that you care most about, what? Yes. Yes, it is. And the reason being... Yeah, what is the reason? (laughs) (laughs) The reason being is because I just feel like before we could build up your wealth, accumulate money for you and with you, you first have to protect your backside. You have to make sure that if any one thing happened, that it does not just destroy whatever that we Hmm. set up for you because it's... You know, most of our our finance can be like a a house of cards. You Mm. take one little thing off and the whole thing crumbles. So that's the the value of insurance and having that in place first. Excellent. That's a really good answer. Mm -hmm. So let's start at the very top then, Blair.
0: Like, what is life insurance?
1: Yeah, let's start there. So for folks who don't know... What is life insurance?
2: Sure, Uh, very black and white. Life insurance is in the event of death, the amount that you have on your policy will pay out to your beneficiary. Mm-hmm. pretty much Simple. done. Yeah, that's that's really it is.
1: So if someone says, you know, I've got a $200,000 life insurance policy, that means if that person were to pass away, their beneficiaries would be entitled to $200,000. When someone talks about a policy, they're talking about, you know, usually the value that gets paid out at the end. Is that right?
2: Exactly. Okay.
0: Good now, stuff. we always make the joke at our home, not all the time, but <laughs> I've just taken out a life insurance policy on you. But, so that, <laughs> has, you know, so that answers that. But But why, besides that reason, why do people take it out? Like, what's the why?
2: I call life insurance the unselfish policy. Mm -hmm. It's because uh, it's always for someone else because you're dead. Mm -hmm. Uh, So therefore, and it's really because you care about someone and you want to make sure that someone is financially taken care of. And that's why you would have life insurance in place. It's income replacement. Okay. What if you're super wealthy and income replacement isn't necessary? Well, that's still a good idea to have life insurance on that person because, first of all, the money that's being paid out to beneficiary, that's always tax-free. And then the second thing is that it usually gets paid out within two weeks. So with Mm. someone with Mm. a, um, a, a large estate, the probate process could take anywhere from six months, which is really optimistic, to about two years or more. So what that means is that in the meantime everything gets frozen and and you don't have access to to what you normally need to have a lifestyle. So having life insurance being paid out to you within two weeks, it's 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 valuable. And
0: bills and all of those things that, that can all of a sudden come up and happen.
2: Yes, exactly.
0: In the um, death of someone. Exactly. Yeah, got mm-hmm. it.
1: And Taylor, how do you decide how much coverage is appropriate? Because I got to imagine that's going to change a lot at someone's point in life. You know, if you're age 18 with no dependents, compared mm-hmm. to your 35 with two kids, compared to your 65 ready to retire. So, how do you really gauge the right coverage at the right time?
2: With the, a lot of questions. So mm. that's the the process of asking the person what's important to that person and. Usually, there, we have some basic things that we do. We look at, for example, um, the debts that you have in place. So if you have half a million dollars in mortgage, we want to make sure that the life insurance will allow that to be pay off in in a lump sum. Perhaps, uh, And then the next thing we want to look at is the income replacement aspects. So if, let's say, uh, the person we're insuring, you know, he brings in $5,000 a month, every single month, if he's no longer here, and he is not necessarily this all the time, but if he's no longer here, then you know, how are we going to continue having this $5,000 coming through? So we look at how much it might need to continue on with this 5000 monthly income. And then the other things that we would consider or things that's, uh, that would be important to the person, such as uh, charities that they want to contribute to, uh, legacies they want to set up in place, uh, money to make sure the kids have uh, money to go to school, post-secondary school, and, and all these different things. Like we look at the tax implication of this person passing on, capital gain tax, that's a huge thing, and even funeral costs. You know, my, my dad passed away, you know, over 10 years ago, and it costs us to buy the, the lots and, mm. and, you know, to do everything all in was $30,000, and that wow. was over mm. 10 years ago. Yeah. Right, and there's a, a, a death uh, benefit
0: that you get—it's like twenty-two hundred dollars or twenty-eight hundred dollars or something—really mm-hmm. minimal. So, mm-hmm. um
2: yeah, that doesn't go is, very far. Doesn't
0: go very far no. at all.
1: Taylor, I know there's two main types of, of life insurance that I hear about. Can you talk about those? You know, one is term, and the other I've heard—you know—whole life or diff- right. different names to it. I wonder if you can give our listeners a bit of a sense because there's different—you know—many different aspects to them, as long as, as well as costs, right?
2: Oh, absolutely. Term insurance is I. Think of it as temporary insurance. If you have a specific need for a specific time frame, such as a mortgage, for example, then term insurance is a great idea because it's the least expensive option. Hmm. However, if you have the need longer than the term itself, so for example, you want to cover your mortgage for 20 years and you put a 20-year term on it, after 20 years, and if you find other reasons of needing this insurance to continue on, you'll find that the cost would can go like 10 times more than what you originally been paying for the last 20 Mm. years so that's term insurance in a nutshell, if you will. And then permanent insurance or whole life is a different options of permanent insurance. That is for someone that have the intention of having this amount available to their beneficiary for the long term, for the long duration, and not just for a short period. So that would be, you know, if you're thinking, I want to make sure that my spouse's you know, being cared for throughout her life, regardless of when I pass. Uh, oh, that's another thing too. Term insurance—you have to think of think of it from the perspective of if I pass away during this period, Mm. this insurance will cover me and my needs. But permanent insurance or whole life insurance on the other hand is when I pass away Mm. because unfortunately uh, it's kind of 100% guaranteed that Mm -hmm. we will pass away at some point. So when we pass away, this insurance will be in place and it might be more expensive to put in place today But over time, you will find that either the premium stays the same or it goes decrease over time or it would just be paid up, meaning the cost is finished, but the coverage continues forever.
1: So term life insurance, in many cases, it won't pay out. It just gives you basically the protection that you need, maybe when the kids are young and so on and exactly. so forth. But there's no guarantee that your beneficiaries will actually get that dollars at the end of the day. Hopefully they won't. Hopefully you're going to survive through the term. Um, but the whole life, just to summarize, that's a guarantee. So as long as you have that policy in force, if you live to 100 or if you live to 60, your beneficiaries will get, get that certain amount, right?
2: That's awesome. And
1: is it correct you need to set up whole life, obviously before you're age 79 and wanted, you've got to set it up when you're quite young. Is that right?
2: ideally quite young because of the cost of having whole life in place uh, the older you get it gets very very expensive uh, so that's ideally if hmm. we could do that when you're in your in your teens in your 20s in your 30s 40s even okay but when you hit that 50 60 70s it's it becomes quite um the math may not even make sense anymore.
1: And obviously, the you know, the upper end, you could pay as much as you want for insurance. But just so folks have a bit of a sense, what's something reasonable someone could budget for? Do you think just ballpark if they were a relatively young person and looking to, to get some life insurance? Are they looking at hundreds of dollars a month? Are they looking at $50 a month? Is somewhere in between?
2: Okay, well... Um There's so many different options and how how you can work that. But I actually, if I work with someone that's younger, in their early 20s, I would actually find out what the purpose is and and what her budget is, and I would design it around her. Because with whole life insurance, you can literally customize it to the individual, Mm. to the sense, so that if her budget is $50, we can make that work. If it's $100, we can make that work. If it's $500, we can make that work.
0: We've been talking with Taylor Mark, Certified Financial Planner and uh, Chartered Life Underwriter, Certified Health Insurance Specialist. If you'd like to see her and see her in action some more, she's got a terrific YouTube series. It's called Street Smarts with Taylor. Talks about all kinds of topics to do with finances as well as insurance. Uh, Her website, if you want to ask her, she's also founder and CEO of Engrace Financial Solutions, and that website is Engrace Financial. You're listening to dollars and cents. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKW.